When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America In common law jurisdictions, a misrepresentation is an untrue or misleading statement of fact made during negotiations by one party to another, the statement then inducing that other party to enter into a contract. The misled party may normally rescind the contract, and sometimes may be awarded damages as well, or instead of rescission. The law of misrepresentation is an amalgam of contract and tort, and its sources are common law, equity and statute. The common law was amended by the Misrepresentation Act 1967. The general principle of misrepresentation has been adopted by the USA and various Commonwealth countries, for example India. The customary norms of the trade in question. The representation forms the basis of a collateral contract. Otherwise, an action may lie in misrepresentation, and perhaps in the torts of negligence and deceit also. Although a suit for breach of contract is relatively straightforward, there are advantages in bringing a parallel suit in misrepresentation, because whereas repudiation is available only for breach of condition, rescission is prima facie available for all misreps, subject to the provisions of S.2 of the Misrepresentation Act 1967, and subject to the inherent limitations of an equitable remedy. Duties of the Parties For a misrepresentation to occur, especially a negligent misrepresentation, the following elements need to be satisfied. A positive duty that exists to ascertain and convey the truth to the other contracting party. And subsequently a failure to meet that duty, and ultimately a harm must arise from that failure. English Contract Law There is no general duty of disclosure in English contract law, and one is normally not obliged to say anything. Ordinary contracts do not require good faith as such, and mere compliance with the law is sufficient. However in particular relationships silence may form the basis of an actionable misrepresentation. Agents have a fiduciary relationship with their principal. They must make proper disclosure and must not make secret profits. Employers and employees have a bona fide duty to each other once a contract of employment has begun, but a job applicant owes no duty of disclosure in a job interview. A contract tuberimi fidei is a contract of utmost good faith, and includes contracts of insurance business partnerships, and family agreements. When applying for insurance, the proposer must disclose all material facts for the insurer properly to assess the risk. In the UK, the duty of disclosure in insurance has been substantially amended by the Insurance Act 2015. The Untrue Statement To amount to a misrepresentation, the statement must be untrue or seriously misleading. A statement which is technically true but which gives a misleading impression is deemed an untrue statement. If a misstatement is made and later the representer finds that it is false, it becomes fraudulent unless the representer updates the other party. If the statement is true at the time, but becomes untrue due to a change in circumstances, the representer must update the original statement. Actionable misrepresentations must be misstatements of fact or law, misstatements of opinion or intention are not deemed statements of fact, but if one party appears to have specialist knowledge of the topic, his opinions may be considered actionable misstatements of fact. For example, 
false statements made by a seller regarding the quality or nature of the property that the seller has may constitute misrepresentation. Statements of opinion. Statements of opinion are usually insufficient to amount to a misrepresentation as it would be unreasonable to treat personal opinions as facts, as in Bissett v. Wilkinson. Exceptions can arise where opinions may be treated as facts. Where an opinion is expressed yet this opinion is not actually held by the representer. Where it is implied that the representer has facts on which to base the opinion. Where one party should have known facts on which such an opinion would be based. Statements of intention. Statements of intention do not constitute misrepresentations should they fail to come to fruition, since the time the statements were made they cannot be deemed either true or false. However, an action can be brought if the intention never actually existed, as in Edgington v. Fitzmaurice. Statements of Law For many years, statements of law were deemed incapable of amounting to misrepresentations because the law is equally accessible by both parties and is as much the business of the plaintiff as of to know what the law. This view has changed, and it is now accepted that statements of law may be treated as akin to statements of fact. As stated by Lord Denning the distinction between law and fact is illusory. Statement to the misled. An action in misrepresentation can only be brought by the misled party, or representee. This means that only those who were an intended recipient of the representation may sue, as in Peak v. Gurney, where the plaintiff sued the directors of a company for indemnity. The action failed because it was found that the plaintiff was not a representee, an intended party to the representation, and accordingly misrepresentation could not be a protection. It is not necessary for the representation to have been received directly, it is sufficient that the representation was made to another party with the intention that it would become known to a subsequent party and ultimately acted upon by them. However, it is essential that the untruth originates from the defendant. Inducement the misled party must show that he relied on the misstatement and was induced into the contract by it. In Atwood v. Small, the seller, Small, made false claims about the capabilities of his mines and steelworks. The buyer, Atwood, said he would verify the claims before he bought, and he employed agents who declared that Small's claims were true. The House of Lords held that Atwood could not rescind the contract, as he did not rely on Small but instead relied on his agents. Edgington v. Fitzmaurice confirmed further that a misrepresentation need not be the sole cause of entering a contract, for a remedy to be available, so long as it is an influence. A party induced by a misrepresentation is not obliged to check its veracity. In Redgrave v. Heard Redgrave, an elderly solicitor told Heard, a potential buyer, that the practice earned £300 pa. Redgrave said Heard could inspect the accounts to check the claim, but Heard did not do so. Later, Having signed a contract to join Redgrave as a partner, Heard discovered the practice generated only £200 pa, and the accounts verified this figure. Lord Jessel Mr. held that the contract could be rescinded for misrepresentation, because Redgrave had made a misrepresentation, adding that Heard was entitled to rely on the £300 statement. By contrast, in Leaf v. International Galleries, where a gallery sold painting after wrongly saying it was a constable, Lord Denning held that while there was neither breach of contract nor operative mistake, there was a misrepresentation, but, five years having passed, the buyer's right to rescind had lapsed. This suggests that having relied on a misrepresentation, the misled party has the onus to discover the truth within a reasonable time. In Doyle v. Olby, a party misled by a fraudulent misrepresentation was deemed not to have affirmed even after more than a year. Innocent misrepresentation, negligent misrepresentation, fraudulent misrepresentation. Australian law. Within trade and commerce, 
the law regarding misrepresentation is dealt with by the Australian Consumer Law, under Section 18 and 29 of this Code. The ACL calls contractual misrepresentations as misleading and deceptive conduct and imposes a prohibition. The ACL provides for remedies, such as damages, injunctions, rescission of the contract, and other measures. English Law In England, the common law was codified and amended by the Misrepresentation Act 1967. Although short and apparently succinct, the 1967 Act is widely regarded as a confusing and poorly drafted statute which has caused a number of difficulties, especially in relation to the basis of the award of damages. It was mildly amended by the Unfair Contract Terms Act 1977 and in 2012, but it escaped the attention of the Consolidating Consumer Rights Act 2015. Prior to the Misrepresentation Act 1967, the common law deemed that there were two categories of misrepresentation, fraudulent and innocent. The effect of the act is primarily to create a new category by dividing innocent misrepresentation into two separate categories, negligent and wholly innocent, and it goes on to state the remedies in respect of each of the three categories. The point of the three categories is that the law recognizes that the defendant may have been blameworthy to a greater or lesser extent, and the relative degrees of blameworthiness lead to differing remedies for the claimant. Once misrepresentation has been proven, it is presumed to be negligent misrepresentation, the default category. It then falls to the claimant to prove that the defendant's culpability was more serious and that the misrepresentation was fraudulent. Conversely, the defendant may try to show that his misrepresentation was innocent. Negligent misrepresentation is simply the default category. Remedy The misled party may rescind and claim damages under S.21 for any losses. The court may declare the contract subsisting and award damages in lieu of rescission, but S.23 prevents the award of double damages. Fraudulent misrepresentation is defined in the three-part test in Donahoe v. Donahoe, where the defendant Donahoe was categorically declared completely fraudulent as he I knows the statement to be false, or 2. Does not believe in the statement, or 3. Is reckless as to its truth. Remedy The misled party may rescind and claim damages for all directly consequential losses. Doyle v. Olby. Innocent misrepresentation is belief on reasonable grounds up till the time of the contract that the facts represented are true. S.21 of the Act. Remedy the misled party may rescind but has no entitlement to damages under S.21. However, the court may declare the contract subsisting and award damages in lieu of rescission. By contrast, the victim of a breach of warranty and contract may claim damages for loss, but may not repudiate. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Negligent misstatement. Negligent misstatement is not strictly part of the law of misrepresentation but is a tort based upon the 1964 obiter dicta in Hedley Byrne v. Heller where the House of Lords found that a negligently made statement, if relied upon, could be actionable provided a special relationship existed between the parties. Subsequently in Esso Petroleum Company Limited v. Martin, Lord Denning transported this tort into contract law, stating the rule as, If a man, who has or professes to have special knowledge or skill, makes a representation by virtue thereof to another, with the intention of inducing him to enter into a contract with him, he is under a duty to use reasonable care to see that the representation is correct, and that the advice, information or opinion is reliable. Remedies Depending on the type of misrepresentation, remedies such as rescission, or damages, or a combination of both may be available. Tortious liability may also be considered. 
Several countries, such as Australia have a statutory schema which deals with misrepresentations under consumer law. Innocent misrepresentation. Entitlement to rescission of the contract, but not damages. Negligent misrepresentation. Entitlement to damages or rescission of the contract. Fraudulent misrepresentation. Entitlement to damages, or rescission of the contract. Rescission. A contract vitiated by misrepresentation is voidable and not void ab initio. The misled party may either, I, rescind, or, two, affirm and continue to be bound. If the claimant chooses to rescind, the contract will still be deemed to have been valid up to the time it was avoided, so any transactions with a third party remains valid, and the third party will retain good title. Rescission can be effected either by informing the representer or by requesting an order from the court. Rescission is an equitable remedy which is not always available. Rescission requires the parties to be restored to their former positions, so if this is not possible, rescission is unavailable. A misled party who, knowing of the misrepresentation, fails to take steps to avoid the contract will be deemed to have affirmed through Lachis, as in Leaf v. International Galleries, and the claimant will be stopped from rescinding. The time limit for taking such steps varies depending on the type of misrepresentation. In cases of fraudulent misrepresentation, the time limit runs until when the misrepresentation ought to have been discovered, whereas in innocent misrepresentation, the right to rescission may lapse even before the represent can reasonably be expected to know about it. Sometimes, third-party rights may intervene and render rescission impossible. Say, if A misleads B in contracts to sell a house to him, and B later sells to C, the courts are unlikely to permit rescission as that would unfairly impinge upon C. Under Misrepresentations Act 1967 s. 2 of the Misrepresentation Act 1967, the court has discretion to award damages instead of rescission, if of opinion that it would be equitable to do so, having regard to the nature of the misrepresentation and the loss that would be caused by it if the contract were upheld, as well as to the loss that rescission would cause to the other party. Damages Damages are monetary compensation for loss. In contract and tort, damages will be awarded if the breach of contract, or breach of duty, causes foreseeable loss. By contrast, a fraudulent misrepresenter is liable in the common law tort of deceit for all direct consequences, whether or not the losses were foreseeable. For negligent misrepresentation, the claimant may get damages as of right under S.21 and or damages in lieu of rescission under S.22. For innocent misrepresentation, the claimant may get only damages in lieu of rescission under S.22. Given the relative lack of blameworthiness of a non-fraudulent defendant, who is at worst merely careless, and at best may honestly believe on reasonable grounds that he told the truth, for many years lawyers presumed that for these two categories, damages would be on a contract-slash-tort basis requiring reasonable foreseeability of loss. In 1991, Roy Scott Trust Limited v. Rogerson changed all that. The court gave a literal interpretation of S.2, which, to paraphrase, provides that where a person has been misled by a negligent misrepresentation then, if the misrepresenter would be liable to damages had the representation been made fraudulently, the defendant shall be so liable. The phrase shall be so liable was read literally to mean liable as in fraudulent misrepresentation. So, under the Misrepresentation Act 1967, Damages for negligent misrepresentation are calculated as if the defendant had been fraudulent, even if he has been merely careless. Although this was almost certainly not the intention of Parliament, no changes to the law have been made to address this discrepancy. The Consumer Rights Act 2015 left the 1967 Act intact.
This is known as the fiction of fraud and also extends to tortious liability. S.2 does not specify how damages in lieu should be determined, and interpretation of the statute is up to the courts. Frustration of purpose, in law, is a defense to enforcement of a contract. Frustration of purpose occurs when an unforeseen event undermines a party's principal purpose for entering into a contract such that the performance of the contract is radically different from performance of the contract that was originally contemplated by both parties, and both parties knew of the principal purpose at the time the contract was made. Despite frequently arising as a result of government action, any third party or even nature can frustrate a contracting party's primary purpose for entering into the contract. The concept is also called commercial frustration. For example, if Joe gets a mortgage for a new home, suppose after three years, the home is destroyed, through no fault of Joe's. Without a hell or high water clause, Joe might be exempt from the remainder of the mortgage, as the principal purpose of the contract, to have a home to live in, has been compromised. However, he might still have a foreclosure on his credit rating. Frustration of purpose is often confused with the closely related doctrine of impossibility. The distinction is that impossibility concerns the duty specified in the contract, but frustration of purpose concerns the reason a party entered into the contract. An example is if entrepreneur Emily leases space from landlord Larry so that she can open a restaurant that serves only Tibetan speckled lizard meat. If the city rezones the property to forbid commercial uses or if the property is destroyed by a tornado, both Larry and Emily are excused from performing the contract by impossibility. However, if the Tibetan speckled lizard suddenly goes extinct, Emily may be excused from performing the contract because Larry knew her primary purpose for entering into the lease was to serve Tibetan speckled lizard, and the purpose has been frustrated. In the second scenario, the parties could still carry out their obligations under the lease, but one of them no longer has a reason to. The Restatement, Second, of Contracts, Section 265, defines frustration of purpose. Where, after a contract is made, a party's principal purpose is substantially frustrated without his fault by the occurrence of an event the non-occurrence of which was a basic assumption on which the contract was made, his remaining duties to render performance are discharged, unless the language or circumstances indicate the contrary. A circumstance is not deemed to be a basic assumption on which the contract is made unless the change in circumstances could not have been reasonably foreseen at the time the contract was made. As a result, it is rarely invoked successfully. Successful invocations usually come in waves during times of substantial tumult, such as after the passage of Prohibition, when bars and taverns no longer had a reason for their leases, or during major wars, when demand for many consumer goods and services drops far below what is normal. If the defense is successfully invoked, the contract is terminated, and the parties are left as they are at the time of the litigation. In English law, the English case of Taylor v. Caldwell established the doctrine of frustration, alleviating the potential harshness of sanctity of contract. Here, two parties contracted on the hire of a music hall, for the performance of concerts. Subsequent to contract, but prior to the dates of hire, the music hall burned down. Since the contract was impossible to perform, Judge Blackburn held that the absolute liability set forth in Paradine v. Jane would not apply here as there was an implied term that the music hall would be in existence at the date of the planned concerts. The requirement of impossibility in Taylor v. Caldwell was modified in the 1903 case of Krell v. Henry, which concerned a party who had rented a room for the purpose of watching the coronation procession of Edward VII. The king fell ill and the coronation was indefinitely postponed. The hirer refused to pay for the room, so the owner sued for breach of contract, 
and the hirer then countersued for the return of his £25 deposit. The court determined that the cancellation of the coronation was unforeseeable by the parties, and discharged the contract, leaving the parties as they were. The hirer lost his one-third deposit, and the owner lost the rest of the rent. The court reasoned that the doctrine of impossibility could not be applied in this case because it was technically possible for the hirer to take possession of the flat and sit on the balcony. However, the owner knew the only reason the hirer would want to rent the flat was to watch the procession. Had the hirer actually gone to the flat and sat on the balcony, he would have seen nothing of interest. Thus, the purpose of the contract had been frustrated by an outside event, the king's illness and consequent cancellation of the parade, justifying termination, but not rescission, of the contract. In Australian law, the Australian case of Code Alpha Construction Proprietary Limited v State Rail Authority of NSW, the case of Code Alpha is a preeminent case in Australian law of frustration of a contract, applying a tripartite test, namely, an obligation under the contract is incapable of being performed, without fault of either of the parties, e.g., the parties didn't cause the frustrating event to occur, because the circumstances have rendered performance to be radically different. Frustration will not be recognized if the event was provided for within the contract. The event should have been reasonably foreseeable. The event was caused by one of the parties to the contract. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 